Welcome to the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar. These podcasts are part of a research initiative titled Building a Legacy, Qatar FIFA World Cup 2022. Welcome everybody. My name is Professor Daniel Reiche and I'm welcoming today Abdullah Al-Aryan, an Associate Professor of History at Georgetown University in Qatar. We are talking with him about the recently released book, Football in the Middle East, that he has edited. It was published with Hearst in Europe and Oxford University Press in the United States and is the outcome of a working group at the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University, Qatar. Thank you for joining us today, Abdullah. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Daniel. Abdullah, when Qatar was awarded the FIFA World Cup 2022 in December 2010, one of the most common criticisms was that the country and the region lacked football history. You are writing in the introduction of the Football in the Middle East book that the beautiful game has a vibrant history in the region and a long-standing presence as a political and cultural force for over a century. Could you share with us some highlights and milestones of Middle Eastern football history? Sure, I'm happy to. I think, I mean, you know, one of the things that's important to think about, and I think this is true anytime we look at the history of sports uh, anywhere in the world, really, is to think about how it's intertwined with broader, you know, political, social, economic processes. And in this case, looking specifically at the region of the Middle East, seeing the way that Uh, football was completely intertwined with bigger historical developments. And so when we think about the fact that, for instance, it was first introduced by colonial officials um, during the era when most of the Arab Middle East in particular was being occupied by either British or French um, officials, that we, we see that football was introduced particularly by those officials as part of their efforts to transform uh, the local population, particularly the elites who they expected to be quote unquote, you know, properly obedient individuals. And so colonial education very much had uh, physical conditioning as a crucial component in football as a sport, as a game that had rules and boundaries and, and kind of all sorts of ways to kind of discipline and, and to, to um, train uh, local populations was seen as very much a useful tool in that regard. And so we see it very much being intertwined, not just with the colonial experience, but then of course, with the emergence of um, uh, nationalist movements throughout the region. And so we think about the idea that, you know, especially when we go back to the early period in the 20th century, that as the international landscape was being defined by organizations, not just things like the United Nations and, and its precursor in, in the League of Nations, but just any membership in an international institution was seen as a kind of a mark of progress, a sign that you've arrived as a country. And so many nationalist movements wanted to gain acceptance into things like the Uh, Olympic uh, Committee or even things like FIFA when it was first established. Um, and so we see, for instance, Egypt was one of the first countries to gain membership in both of those and even managed to compete in the um, in one of the earliest World Cups in 1934. Um, but we also see nationalist movements using football internally within their own countries uh, in ways to kind of assert their national and um, nationalist claims. And so we see this among both um, Zionist settlers as well as, as Palestinians in the Palestine mandate of Great Britain when they were using football, particularly as a means of asserting their own claims. We see it aiding the Hashemite monarchy next door in Jordan as it was trying uh, to consolidate Jordanian national identity. Um, we see it in Sudan, for instance, where university graduates were then 
um, you know, becoming part of the national go the governance structures of the, the National Football League in Sudan and what was known as being an early exercise in mass politics and popular gov government. Um, we see it later on, for instance, in the case of Algeria, where the FLN, as it was fighting for independence from France, formed its own football team that then went on tour around the world, where it was it was playing these these um, friendly matches against clubs, against national sides, all at the time that it was advocating on behalf of Algerian independence. Um, and so, even beyond that, let if if we even want to take you know some of these like explicitly or overtly political ends, I think just thinking about football culture in a lot of these countries. Um, looking at things like the historic and rich rivalries between various teams, we look at things like, um, you know, that Ahli Zamalek, of course, is the famous one in Egypt that goes back, um, you know, for the past century. We look at even in a country like Saudi Arabia, where the two biggest sides, Al-Hilal and Al-Ittihad, have been, you know, playing historic matches for the better part of the last 60 years. Um, even a country like Turkey, which perhaps we tend to associate Turkish football um, with Europe because it plays within UEFA and it's part of the European um, Confederation. But at the same time, of course, we know that there are historic roots between Turkey and the rest of the region. And so we have you know, important rivalries like Galatasaray and Fenerbahce. Um, again, all of these to show that there is a kind of a, a rich cultural landscape in which football has been ever present for basically the last century. Great. Um, <clears throat> As a, as a scholar of Egyptian history, you are particularly interested in Egyptian football and politics, and also your individual chapter is about it. Um, unfortunately, uh, Egypt did not qualify for the FIFA World Cup 2022, also meaning that Mo Salah, maybe the most famous Muslim football player, won't be at the World Cup. Um, could, could we talk a bit about Egypt? Which role did Egypt play for the development of sport and football in the Middle East? Yeah, I certainly think that's an absence that will be felt, but we can have a much longer conversation about, you know, the, the problems, the very deep, I would say, and serious problems uh, that the Egyptian National uh, Football Association has been facing for the last, you know, at least five years or so, and why it's not going to actually be present at, uh, at the 22 uh, World Cup. But I think if we think about it historically, of course, Egypt has by far the oldest league uh, that's been formed. In fact, we have a chapter um, that deals specifically with the formation of the Egyptian League. It has perhaps the deepest rivalry between two clubs, historic clubs. Um, we mentioned the fact that it played in the 1934 World Cup. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, later on, we start seeing, especially under Gamal Abdel Nasser, so after this military-led you know, revol revolution in 1952, um, that as the Nasser regime begins to consolidate its, uh, its control over um, you know, the rest of Egyptian society, that it actually begins to see the value in football and actually takes a leading role in spreading it, not just within Egypt, but actually throughout the region and maybe even across the entire African continent. So, for instance, Nasser oversees the project uh, of establishing the Confederation of African Football. And CAF, of course, now is, is the, um, you know, FIFA member, uh, you know, the Continental Confederation. Um, and so immediately Egypt then launches the first uh, tournament of CAF, so the first African Cup, and then proceeds to win it actually the first two times. And to this day is by far the country that has won more African Cups at seven than, than any other country. Um, we also see that although they've only played in two World Cups since the very first one, but we know that they've only barely missed several others. And so not just in the heartbreaking defeat that Egypt suffered this year to Senegal, but even on a couple of occasions uh, when Algeria qualified ahead of them. 
But I think at least the legacy of Egyptian football, considering it's the most populous Arab country, considering that even on a cultural level, it has occupied a very central place. Um, and so Egyptian uh, football players tend to be some of the most iconic, not just Mohamed Salah, of course, who's become a global icon, but I think back just, you know, in the last couple of decades, someone like Mohamed Abutreka, who was an incredibly talented player who, you know, didn't make it into, you know, European fans or global fans, but certainly was was very beloved within the Arab world and across the African continent as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, one follow-up question on, on Egypt. Just months after Qatar was awarded the World Cup in December 2010, uh, the Arab uprising started. And um, one of the topics in the book is the role football played in Egypt, but also other countries such as Tunisia in this process. Uh, could you elaborate on, on this topic, uh, the role of football in the Arab uprisings, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think even before we get to the to the uprising specifically, I think it's important to to think about how football could be a site of mobilization uh, in in an authoritarian context, in particular. So we're talking about countries in which organizing independent political parties, for instance, is is you know near impossible. Um, in places where people can't simply just form um, explicitly political civil society groups that are meant to kind of shake the foundations of the authoritarian system. And so in those settings, there have to be kind of alternative modes for, for people to, you know, not just to mobilize, but even just to gather, to organize, to just be together in large group settings. And cultural occasions usually take that, uh, you know, take that role. And so, you know, we see football as being a place where people forge common bonds, There's a certain kind of shared language, shared symbols, the building of camaraderie, and of course, the, the establishment of ultra groups. Now we hear about ultra groups in, in many settings and very kind of negative connotations as, as sites of violence and discrimination and, and racism and, um, you know, kind of uh, anarchism and so forth. But I think there also has to be kind of a broader um, discussion of how ultra groups, especially in authoritarian settings, tend to be sites of also building and forging all of these kind of common bonds and ability to mobilize. And so in this region in particular, these groups have had a rich history of defending their fans from police action, um, of being able to come together, not just to cheer on teams, but even to mobilize on uh, a number of different kinds of issues, crucial social issues, economic issues, um, and, and it, it, even explicitly political issues. And so by the time you get to 2011, or, you know, 2010, 2011, the period when the first protests broke out in Tunisia and then Egypt and beyond that in Yemen and Syria and Bahrain and many other countries, um, we see that these groups actually tended to have some of the richest experience in confronting police violence and confronting military forces coming at them in, in kind of large waves. And so they actually played a very crucial role um, in places like the Hadir Square in Cairo um, and elsewhere across the region. They usually tried to hold the line against efforts by regime security forces to basically break up and, and scatter um, the protesters. Um, so much so that, that you know, in the case of, for instance, Al-Ahli, the Ahlawi supporters, um, there was even a very distinct effort by the regime to seek retaliation. In 2012, for instance, there was the, the really tragic Port Said Stadium massacre in which 74 fans were killed. All of the eyewitness testimony suggests that this was a premeditated assault that was very much planned by Egyptian police forces um, to specifically punish and single out the Ahlawi supporters because of their political activity. And so again, we get the sense that they're very much on the front lines of a lot of the major 
uh, mobilizations and the confrontations. And we see other examples of this, including the Herak movement in Algeria, um, which relied very heavily on the slogans, the songs, the TIFOs, uh, artistic displays and trying to mobilize fan supporters. And this is a much more recent example um, that tried to challenge um, the state's uh, attempt to try to kind of reassert the authoritarian um, system that's in place with uh, with yet a fifth presidential term for Bouteflika. So there's there's a lot of kind of examples that we see across the region, even uh, beyond Egypt. Now we've already touched some of the topics in the book. Uh, overall, this edited volume has 12 chapters. Could you share with us, uh, first of all, insights in the process that led to the Football in the Middle East book and give us a brief overview uh, about the major issues covered in the individual chapters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was really, uh, I have to say, it was a labor of love. It was, it was a project that you know, all of us greatly enjoyed working on. Um, obviously, kudos to the Center for International Regional Studies right here at Georgetown, Qatar, that, that kind of came up with this project and then brought us all together in one room um, to meet and kind of discuss the various research questions that exist in exploring this topic. I think all of us kind of agreed that this is as much as, as there's a, a rise in interest and, and especially scholarly interest, um, but there certainly still is, is a long way to go. Um, to really focus in on football in the Middle East, especially when you compare about the literature around football in other parts of the world. And so the, the key effort here was to try to identify what are the most pressing research questions, some of which of course deal very directly with the upcoming World Cup in Qatar, which has kind of focused in all of the world's attention on this region and its role or its place as far as football is concerned. But even thinking beyond that, and I, and I think this is one of the things that I like the most is that this volume really brings together scholars who are thinking much more deeply about these issues beyond just kind of recent events. Um, I like the fact that it was also very much interdisciplinary in nature. And so you have people coming from very disciplinary backgrounds who do different kinds of research um, all of which kind of are, are helping offer different lenses to enter or to approach the questions around football in the Middle East. Um, there are a number of overlapping questions, some of which are just overtly political. And so we see it, for instance, even in the opening chapter that looks at the history of the Egyptian league, the way that uh, the league was formed very much as the product of a kind of negotiation between both not just the colonial officials, but also um, and, you know, Egyptian elites, many of whom had a very vested stake in the establishment of football as um, a site of social organization, of political expression, of, you know, economic enrichment, potentially. So all of these kinds of questions come to the fore when we see the story of how that league was formed and all of the kind of broader political implications. So in, in my own chapter, for instance, I look at how uh, powerful institutions particularly though, you know, those coming at the very state level try to instrumentalize football specifically for political goals. So thinking about it beyond this question of soft power, and I include a number of examples looking, for instance, at Egypt under the Mubarak era and the way that in its rivalry with Algeria in advance of the 2010 World Cup, you had this kind of real um, you know, major breakdown in relations and a major confrontation all in the name of Egypt's um, desire to qualify for the World Cup, but which was really being used cynically um, to try and empower not just Hosni Mubarak and his regime, but to even actually prepare the way for the possibility that his son could inherit the presidency by making him the focal point of a kind of a overnight sort of nationalist fervor um, that took place there. I have other examples from Qatar and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, et cetera. 
Um, but I think the flip side of that, in terms of not just how authoritarian regimes might be able to instrumentalize football, but as we we just said before, in terms of how popular movements can also, you know, uh, mobilize around the question of football for their own political rights. And of course, we have a chapter that looks specifically at the Algeria example that I mentioned before. Um, there are a number of other chapters that look specifically at the uh, social questions and looking at the way that, for instance, football can be used as a lens by which we look at things like gender inequality in Turkey by looking at what our one author calls the trivialization of women's football there, um, looking at the question of refugees and how refugee aid programs have also used the question of football as a kind of a universal mechanism to try to alleviate some of those, although that also kind of comes with its share of problems. Um, we've seen it, for instance, in the boycott movement uh, against apartheid type um, conditions in Israel. So the BDS movement specifically has looked at football as a means to kind of mobilize around the question of justice for Palestinians. We see it also in the way that Qatari national identity gets performed. So when we look at the Qatar national team made up of people from various countries, um, in some ways in terms of their ethnic background or their national backgrounds, but yet they all kind of come together. It actually tends to challenge some of what we might assume in terms of what people's background might tell us about how they might be willing to perform national identity within the Qatari national football team. Of course, the question about labor rights in Qatar is very much highlighted through the question of football, the building of stadiums, all of the kind of labor rights campaigns that have been launched. Um, and we look at things as well that look at fan culture, for instance, in the GCC, questions of media rights, whether in Qatar or even across the, the region, in terms of all of the, the way that the broadcasting industry has played out over, um, you know, the, the question, the conflicts over broadcasting rights of football. Um, and even the question of something like the Iranian media's coverage of women's football campaigns, right? So thinking about the fact that women are banned from stadiums and how many have tried to protest that, and then, of course, the role of media coverage in that. Uh, and then, of course, there's your own chapter, Daniel. If, if you could maybe share with us a little bit about your findings. You wrote an excellent chapter um, on the experience of stateless Palestinian football players within the context of, uh, of Lebanon in particular. Yeah, I'm happy to, to make some comments on this. I mean, I was interested in that topic for two reasons. First of all, at the World Cup uh, in November, December of this year, we will have 32 countries participating. And we are always talking about the countries participating and those who fail to qualify. I mean, there are 211 uh, associations in FIFA and the vast majority of them, 179, is not qualifying. So we're talking about the drama of Egypt with Mo Salah not qualifying. We are talking about the drama of Italy, the European champion not qualifying. But we are not talking about those who do not participate and uh, who those who um, could not even try to participate because uh, to, to be able to represent a country, uh, you need to be a citizen of a country. FIFA rules and also the International Olympic Committee rules clearly state without citizenship, you cannot represent a country. That's one. And the second is before I joined George and Qatar in summer 2020, I worked 12 years in Lebanon and I was exposed in my time at the American University of Beirut to, to the life of uh, uh, Palestinian refugees in, in Lebanon. Uh, I had Palestinian students and, um, and uh, coming breaking it down to football, um, being a Palestinian refugee in, in Lebanon 
means what I call it uh, uh, operating in a triple periphery. Because first of all, um, you are, have limited opportunities to play in the local league because there's a cap of one Palestinian player in each team. And you cannot represent Lebanon in international football. You can also not represent Palestine in international football because the Palestinian refugees, they live there in third, fourth generation. They don't get Palestinian citizenship because for Palestinian citizenship, you need to be a res re resident of West Bank or Gaza. So they cannot represent Lebanon. They cannot represent Palestine. And because of their uh, uh, refugee status, they are also limited to, to move abroad to other countries to look for opportunities there. So overall, this shows that the lack of citizenship is a serious problem in international sport. There are very few exceptions of few sports, such as rugby and cricket, where you can also represent a country um, based on residence and not citizenship. But for the vast majority of sports, including the most popular sport in the world, football, it's a true problem of not being a citizen. And the advantage of citizenship we can see in other countries with large Palestinian communities, such as Jordan and Chile in South America, uh, where uh, Palestinian football players are very successful. They have their own clubs which play in the domestic leagues and are successful and uh, Palestinian sports in, in, in Chile and in, in Jordan represent those countries in international sports. Uh, but that's unfortunately not happening in Lebanon. And all of this I'm describing in detail in this chapter that I tremendously enjoyed writing. Mm. So maybe I can ask you one more question, Abdullah. Um, you are concluding in the book that uh, football is not only an explanatory tool to assist in the understanding of broader political, cultural, and social economic forces at work in the Middle East. Rather, it exists as a site of contestation in its own right. Quote. Could you explain this argument to us, please? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the issues with Anytime scholars get together and they try to look at something that might seem, you know, a bit surface level or trivial or something that exists kind of, you know, exclusively in a kind of cultural realm, that the only time they'll take it seriously is how it might help explain other things. And so football then just becomes a means to an end, just a way to understand society in terms of, you know, the various political questions, the various economic questions raised by football. And, and I wanted to be sure that we, you know, I think all of us who worked on this are passionate about football in its own right. And we believe that it's important to examine it in its own right. And so we, you know, we approach it from the perspective that this is a cultural form that clearly has incredibly wide appeal. It has the ability to unite, ability to divide, ability to oppress, ability to liberate. And it features its own kind of contestations over power, over influence, over attention. Um, and that in that sense, I think it's it's worth looking at it sort of on its own terms and not just purely as a vehicle through which other things are playing out. Um, and I think that comes across in the way that, that these, these um, chapters have all come together and the kind of approach that all of the different scholars have brought to this volume is seeing that it really exists as a place where a lot of, um, of these various kinds of contests are playing out, um, whether on the field or sort of behind the scenes of what's taking place on the field, but that for the most part, at least, we shouldn't just think of it purely as just a kind of a, a symbolic mode of just analyzing other questions. Terrific. Thank you very much, Abdullah. 
we will have a couple of more activities uh, related to the book. Uh, everybody who's interested, please follow us here on uh, social media. And um, we talked a lot about Egypt not qualifying for this World Cup. I hope it will happen 2026 when as the World Cup will have 48 and not just 32 teams. So it might become a little bit easier to qualify. So thank you very much, Abdullah, for talking to us today and all the best for you personally and professionally. Thank you so much.